Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Good to see you. So we're going to continue now through our series of sermons, Two Little Birdies, this morning, uh, just beginning to talk about some of the, the supports of marriage. Next week, we're going to be entering into discussions about uh, role responsibility, uh, men being leaders and heads of their homes, women being submissive and helpers in their homes, uh, which can be somewhat controversial. Then we're going to move on to conflict in marriage and talking about how to love each other, forgive each other. Then we're going to move on to biblical sex. So I trust that uh, everybody's going to be like, we're going to be talking about sex Sunday morning. Let's go. And you're going to be bringing people with you. Uh, Then we're going to talk about biblical child rearing. And after that, we will uh, be wrapping up the year. In January, I'm going to give a couple messages, just kind of outlining the vision and the mission of the church. There's a lot of new people here. We want you to know who we are, what we do, what we're about. We're going to talk about giving. We want to get our budget up to speed for 2013. So we'll be doing that at the beginning of January. Then we'll start the book of Zechariah, just giving you guys a map for where we're going in the scriptures. Book of Zechariah for 16 weeks. Through the summer, we're going to do a kind of belong, believe series. We believe, so we belong. This is what we do. This is who we are. Training through the summer. And then we're going to hit the Gospel of Mark in 2013. And we'll be in the Gospel of Mark for a good long time. So God's word, we believe here, is the Bible. We believe that God has breathed the scriptures. And uh, I believe personally that today he has a word for every one of you. And uh, I have been praying for you. Some of you by name, as I know you and think of you. And I'm praying for your marriages and I'm praying for sweet joy and great grace to be upon the marriages of this church through this series. And I trust that as God continues to bless us in his word, there will be these seasons of just his spirit and his presence and his power that you, his sons and daughters, would experience his infinite mercy and the life that he wants to you to live is a life of joy. So if you're new here, my name is Pastor Danny. And uh, I have the great and humbling opportunity to serve you today by teaching the Bible. So let's pray. Uh, We just surrender to you this morning, gracious God. We give you all praise. And by faith now we offer this Sunday gathering in this community to you as living sacrifices. It's our right response in light of all that you have done for us in sending your son Jesus to die for us. And setting us free from any guilt and any shame that we would lay down our lives for you. We invite you, God, to be our teacher. We invite you, Jesus, to be our savior. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to be our comforter, our counselor, and our power. Let there be a thickness of your presence in this place today as the community, the family called Taproot, has gathered at the beginning of the week, to be fed the scriptures, to be strengthened, to be corrected, to be comforted, and then to be sent into their neighborhoods and their workplaces with your power and your grace and your mercy guiding their daily steps. I pray that every one of the members of this church, the regular attenders and the visitors today, I pray that they would know you, Jesus. It's my pastor's prayer. 
it is my heart, and I know it is the heart of you, my God, that these people would know you, that they would know you, because you are alive. We give you all praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. My backyard serves as a great opening illustration for this idea of trees as an allegory or an analogy of, thanks, Drew, as an analogy of marriage. Um, I live on a green belt, and so my backyard is a very steep kind of ravine that goes down into a gully, and there's these massive trees. And uh, Doug, one of our members, one of my buddies in my missional community, he's been helping me kind of take these trees out. And last week we talked about how when the roots of trees are dead, everything else above the surface dies as well. So what we see in trees is we see just what's above the surface, but there's this root system that goes far beyond what we can see. And it has to be healthy for the trees to grow straight and strong and for the ground to be safe. Because where I live, if the tree roots die, the whole backside of my backyard is going to slide down into the gully. What's amazing though, listen to this guys. Doug came over, we chopped down one of my trees that was going to fall on my house if a big windstorm hit, but the root system is healthy. Doug literally cut it about four feet off of the ground. And now when you go out and you look at this tree, it's all gone except for this like four foot stump. And there are leaves just exploding out of it. Why? Even though it's taken a huge hit, that thing still wants to live because the roots are alive. Now there's another one back there and it's a nasty one. Some of you may have these in your yards. This tree is huge and it grows up and then kind of takes a hard right to get to the light. And then it just goes out this way, like 60, 75 feet. This tree grows out this way and the support of the tree, the trunk is faulty. And I cringe all through the night. Every time a windstorm starts, cause I'm like, I know that thing's going to come down. Thankfully it's angled where it would hit my shop and not my house. But the point being the support of the tree, the trunk of the tree, the roots may be healthy, but then what supports the tree isn't healthy. It's not strong. It's not straight. So We want to take that kind of opening picture and we want to apply it to our marriages this morning. I want to remind you here of culture's dead roots and weak supports. I found this quote in some of the reading that I've been doing, and I'd like you guys to be able to read it along with me here. You don't have to read it out loud. We can bring up that first slide. This is from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, which we use in our marriage curriculum. It will be out on the book table uh, next week, and I cannot recommend this book enough. But I want to talk and remind you guys about the weakness of how culture views marriage. That the roots of culture are dead, but also the support systems of how culture defines marriage and what marriage is about are twisted and weak. John Witte, he's a lawyer of sorts, quoted in Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this about marriage and culture's support for marriage. He says, the old ideal of marriage was a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection. But today, the new idea of marriage is as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. Let me break that down for you there just a little bit to get at what Witty is saying. He's saying that there was an old ideal of marriage that our culture adopted and embraced that was much more in line with the biblical ideals of marriage, the supports for marriage. It was a contractual union, and it was designed specifically for mutual love and making babies and the protection of the family, the protection of the couple, and really the protection of the society. But as our society has devolved and as depravity has continued to grow unchecked in the hearts of humanity, now marriage has taken on this kind of new idea. And it's now this easily terminated contract, meaning it's not something that we enter into with great gravity. Instead, it's more like kind of a a junior high mentality. I like you, you like me. Let's sign this contract before justice of peace. And if at some point you don't like me and I don't like you, it's easily terminated. Yeah, there's some legal hoops to jump through, but we can pretty much walk away from this contract scot-free without a whole lot of work and a whole lot of feeling in it. Along with that, marriage now not only is terminal, but it's also based primarily, especially in younger generations of people, on sexual and emotional feelings. I am romantically attracted to you. I am sexually aroused by you. The, the classic statement of the young man, the young woman preparing to be marriage, preparing to enter into marriage, when you ask them, why, why do you know that they're the one? Why are you committing your life to them? Well, they make me feel so great. 
And what we see is now marriage and the mind frame around marriage is that it's easily terminated. It's based on sexual, romantic, kind of up and down emotions, really governed by the physiology of our bodies in those times. And finally, we see that it is actually now no longer about the other. But if we are honest with how our culture views marriage, marriage is really about how it makes us feel. Marriage is something that is for our self-gratification. This is why, based on these things, in the, the cultural mind frame of marriage, rather than the trunk being straight and true, it's deformed and it kind of goes off here to the right and it leans really heavily and marriages fall apart quickly because the very supports of marriage, it's terminated easily, it's based on sexual attraction, it's based on emotional arousal. And it's based on the gratification of myself. That falls apart quickly. And so the tree quickly begins to fall over. In this kind of context, in this way of thinking about marriage, what we see is that the two people aren't actually becoming one. And trust me, I've done a lot of marriage counseling over the years. And this is what I've seen. In this way of supporting marriage, the two don't become one, but they actually end up living separately as roommates. And the whole point of their marriage is to compete to see who can get the most gratification for themselves out of the other. This is why we have marriages where the two partners within the marriage, they have a separate bank account. They have separate activities. They have separate hobbies. They have separate friends. They have separate dreams. And they come together as long as the sex is good and as long as the other partner makes them feel good about themselves. And it's quickly terminated when all of that falls apart. The support, the trunk, it's bent, it's burnt, it's incapable of supporting and holding up what this thing marriage actually is. This is why the mantra of our culture and, and the world as we talk about marriage says, well, I fell into love. Like we stumble into some sort of emotional thing and then I just fell out of love when in actuality, love is much more than an emotional reality. It is an action and it is an attitude. So what I want to talk with you about this morning is three supports for biblical marriage that each of us need to have in our hearts. Three primary support systems. And if we can get these support systems, if we can have these as our core values, whether you're preparing for marriage or you're in the early stages of being married and you've hit the the very steep learning curve of two people that want self-gratification figuring out this isn't about me, it's about her, it's about him. Or you're 50 years down the road and you're like, wow, you know, we're starting to run dry at the back end of our marriage. All of these supports, all of these trunk pieces will bring great joy to your marriages. So the three things I want to talk with you guys about this morning, we can go to the next slide. Purpose of marriage, the covenant of marriage, and the power of marriage. For you note takers, there's going to be three supports that we're going to work through this morning. The purpose of marriage, the covenant of marriage, and the power of marriage. I want to begin every one of these sessions by making very clear, here is the most, if you want a healthy marriage, just by, just so I know I've got all of you guys with me this morning, how many of you want a healthy marriage? Just raise up your hand. All right, good. <laughs> I was about ready to point out somebody that wasn't raising their hand. I'd be like, look at that guy. He doesn't want a healthy marriage. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you want a healthy marriage, if you want to live the fullest life that God wants to give to you, you must make this statement true, it must pervade every bit of your marriages and your mentalities. Our marriages are from and through and for God, not us. Our marriages are from God. God created marriage as we talked about last week. God designed marriage. He is the sculptor and the shaper of marriage. So marriage is from God. It is not some social institution. It's not a legislated ideal. It is a wholly theologically based and governed and guided and created institution. Our marriages are through God. What God wants in our marriages and what God is doing through our marriages are all through who he is, as we talked about last week. And this is maybe the most vital word in that whole sentence. Your marriage, loved one, is for God. It's not for you. It's not about you. If you are a believer here this morning, you are married to that person sitting next to you. And that marriage is for the glory of God and for God's working in your life. But it is all about him long before it is about you. So these three supports that we're going to talk about this morning. 
for our marriages to grow in strength and be able to withstand the winds of culture and the winds of sin that come against them, each partner must believe and know and live out these three core supports. Understanding the purpose of marriage, what God has purposed in marriage. Second, we need to be believing and knowing and living out that marriage is a covenant. We'll talk a little bit about covenant this morning. And then finally, we'll close with talking about embracing the power for our marriages. Beginning here with believing in living the biblical supports, the purpose, the purpose of marriage. And as I put there on the slide, the purpose of marriage biblically is really in, in, in the most summary way, twofold. God designed marriage and gave us marriage to experience himself in relationship with each other and to express himself to the world around us. God gave us marriage to experience love, to experience delight, to experience pleasure and unity and intimacy. God gave us marriage so that we could, in this life with another human being in the most intimate way, experience mercy, experience forgiveness. God gave us marriage, I would say, in some ways, and this isn't joking, this is said in all seriousness, so that we could experience a sensation of true justice when we're wronged and then experience true mercy and true forgiveness when we let go of that in the blood of Jesus. We remember from last week that the problem with these things, love and pleasure and delight and intimacy, is that the culture influences and redefines these things for us. So as I've already said, love is nothing more than an emotional sexual arousal. And as soon as that goes away, well, I just don't love her. I just don't love him anymore. Pleasure is based not on being in the presence of the other, but really on having the other serve me as I see fit. And relationship is based on what I can get out of the other individual. Now, as we discussed last week, the Holy Spirit, when we become born again, he makes us new and he reconnects us to those original roots in our triune God. Where love now is experienced out of the reality of who God is. God who loves the Son and the Son who loves the Father and the Father who loves the Spirit and the Spirit who loves the Son and the Father. These three persons in one essence seeking the highest flourishing of each other for all of eternity. God who delights in himself. He says to the Son, I am so pleased I have the highest joy and delight being in your presence, Jesus. Jesus saying to the Father and the Spirit, there is no greater delight, no greater pleasure than just to be in your presence. And intimacy and unity. You have full equality between Father, Son, and Spirit. But then you have these differences in the way that they work out redemption and creation and atonement. The Father sends the Son. The Son submits to the Father's wrath on the cross. Jesus is resurrected in submission to the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then makes much of Jesus to bring glory to him. And one day Corinthians tells us that Jesus will hand over the kingdom that has been handed to him and all will be made well again in the world and creation and history. So we must once again experience these restored roots coming out of who God is, where now we define love, we experience love, not as what we get from our partner. She makes me feel so good. He makes me feel so great. I define love now in this restored, rooted reality as everything I do is to seek her highest flourishing. Princess bride, the servant unto the princess as the princess would ask the servant to go and make these ridiculous errands on her behalf, his response would always be, as you wish. And slowly but surely, the princess began to realize that every time the servant said unto her, as you wish, he was actually saying, I love you. And then under his breath, he would say, what a pain in the butt, right? <laughs> no, he was saying, I love you. I love you. Now our marriages are designed Beloved brother, listen to me. God gave you marriage so that you could experience what it's like to seek the highest flourishing of another individual at the expense of yourself. That's why you're married to her. God, sister, gave to you him so that you could experience the height of pleasure just sitting in his presence. Gentlemen, puff your chests out. <laughs> just in my presence, baby, there's pleasure. Because of who God is and what God does. God gave to each of us in this room that are married today, 
He gave us this marriage to experience what it's like to be unified, to be intimate to the degree where you are actually one in heart, in mind, in soul, in spirit, in flesh. To be two separate persons, but to be one in essence. God gave you the purpose in marriages to experience and to image and to reflect him. This changes the whole way that we think about operating with one another and relating to one another and caring for one another and serving one another. Along with this continual experience of God that he gives to us in the design of marriage, he is also seeking to form God in us. Much more on this next week over the next couple weeks. God wants you to look just like Jesus. He wants you to become more like Jesus. And there is no better way for you to become more like Jesus, look more like Jesus, than he puts somebody with you who is specifically designed in their blessings, in their gifts, and in their sins to force you to, by faith, become more like Jesus. God gave you that wife and all of those problems and all of those blessings so that Jesus Christ could be formed in you. God gave you that husband so that he could, whether he does it well or whether he abdicates his responsibility, lead you, lady, to become more like Jesus. Now, even more importantly in this life, we must believe and know and live the purpose that our marriage is to express God. It is not only to experience God, but it is to express to the world around us who our God is. Marriage serves as a picture. God has designed and given us marriage so that the world will look on, particularly, particularly the Christian-fueled, spirit-led marriage. And the world will look on, and God has designed it in such a way, he has purposed it in such a way that the world looks on and says, Wow, the way that man treats his wife, the way that wife treats her husband, that must be how God treats his people, and that must be how his people respond to him. That's a heavy, heavy, heavy paradigm shift. When it comes to the way that we think about our marriages. God throughout the Old Testament uses marriage language to express his relationship with his people. When he wants to paint a picture of how he loves his people and goes after his people and saves his people. God uses marriage language. You can't go through any book of the Old Testament nor the New without finding allusions to God and these ideas of marriage. Just a couple. Hosea 2.19. God says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Isaiah 54.5. Your maker is your husband. In the Old Testament in particular, when the people of God are rebelling against God and they're not serving God and they're not loving God and they're, they're rebelling against him, the language becomes, I'm jealous over you. When they really start ripping on the idols and just going for it, getting away from God, the language becomes, you adulterers and you whores. And so God uses this language to express to the world around us what he is to us. Our covenant, unified, loving, adoring husband. Now here in verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 5 where Pastor Mike was reading for us. I'll read it for us again. We have this very clear purpose in marriage. Paul says, after laying out the responsibilities of the man, talked about next week. Laying out the responsibilities of the women, talked about in the next two weeks. He then makes this statement, verse 32. This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The New Testament says the purpose of your marriage, gentlemen, is to show the world how Jesus treats his church as you treat your wife. Ladies, the purpose of being married to him is to show the world around you, including your husband, your closest family, friends, networks, and neighbors, how the church, how God's people respond, trust, follow, love, and are led by Jesus. <laughs> Do you see how just hearing that like changes your whole frame of mind around marriage? Because your marriage isn't about you. Your marriage is about God. So the man will go on and he will become the example in God's grace, though imperfectly, of sacrifice and service and provision and leadership and protection. And God in his grace will enable the woman 
by the Holy Spirit to become that submissive woman who is following after the lead of her husband, just as the church follows after the lead of Jesus Christ. When we truly are believing this first support of our marriages, when we truly believe that God has purposed this to experience himself and to express himself, now all of a sudden those kind of dead roots of cultural definitions of love and and delight and pleasure, all of those things are transformed. And we bear the responsibility before God, for our wives, for our husbands, and for our city, for our neighbors in living this out according to his power And according to his grace. And here's the thing, guys. For some of you that are new to the Bible, you may just be sitting there cringing. I totally understand the Bible says some crazy, crazy stuff. But I assure you that what the Bible gives to us when we believe these things and know these things and live these things, you will experience the highest joy. We live in this kind of backwards way of thinking where we define what will bring us joy. And we believe if our marriage was this way and if she would just do this and if she would just do that and if he would just do this and he would just do that, then I'd finally have a happy marriage. No, 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 no. Turn your hearts to God. Believe, know, and live the purpose that God has made marriage for and you're in that marriage. Begin with the fullness of faith, the power of the Holy Spirit, and earnest prayer to live it out. And you will find that you are transformed, that there is a great joy. There is a, there's a much more real and vibrant passion that God arises and raises up in your lives. For the support to be solid for the trunk of our marriages to be straight, to withstand the wind of culture and sin. You got to believe and know that the whole point of your marriage is to experience him and to express him to the world around you. Support number two, the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage. If marriage is a picture, like we've been talking about, a beautiful painting of how God relates to his people, then the frame within which that picture is painted is a covenant, a covenant, the covenant of marriage. Covenant is kind of this old archaic word that has lost its meaning in our culture. And I'll try to give to you a very brief definition so that we can have an understanding of the covenant of marriage. Covenant bears in its meaning the idea of a promise and not only a promise, but an unconditional promise. And not only an unconditional promise, but a promise with requirements in the sense that each party is promising to the other that I will fulfill, I will satisfy these particular requirements, these particular actions, these particular attitudes, these particular ways. And so what we see in the way that God relates to us is that if he uses the language of his heart to express his heart in the framework of marriage, Hope that made sense. If God expresses his heart towards us using the language of marriage, then he also relates to us through a covenant, through a promise. Our Old Testament and New Testament, they are lengthy covenants. In fact, in the old language, it was the old covenant and the new covenant, correct? So God has always come and related to his people through these covenants, through these contracts, through these promises, through these testaments. Beginning with Adam, I'm going to walk you through the the main covenants of the Bible very quickly. We begin with Adam. God related to Adam in the garden, and he had a covenant with him. He said to him, I've created you, I've made you, I've given you a wife, now I want you to procreate, I want you to have babies, I want you to go rule, I want you to go reign. Oh, by the way, there's going to be one work in this. Reformed theologians have called the covenant with Adam the one and only covenant of works. Don't eat from the tree. And of course, we all know the story. Snake comes slithering in, says to Adam's wife, Eve, hey, did God really say? She says, well, I'm not sure. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. She breaks the works covenant. Adam breaks the works covenant and they are cast out of the garden. Then God continues to relate with his people through the rest of history in covenantal ways. But now it's a covenant of grace. Meaning, God initiates the relationship. God sets up all of the parameters of the relationship. God fulfills the parameters and the requirements of the relationship. And we, humanity, in covenants of grace, believe and receive. That's our job. 
God comes and he lays out what he wants. We believe, we receive, and we go forward in relationship with him. The next covenant that we see laid out in the Old Testament is the covenant of Noah. God comes to him and says, all of these people are crazy. They're making me nuts. That's my paraphrase of Genesis. He says, they are really, really bad. None of them are thinking rightly about me. None of them are thinking rightly about each other. I'm going to wipe them all out. In fact, I'm pretty bummed that I even made them. But you, Noah, not because you're extra special, not because you've done it right, but because I'm gracious and I choose to show mercy to whom I chose to show mercy. I know these are hard pills to swallow sometimes. But Noah, you, I pick you. I choose you. I'm going to flood this world, build a boat, get on it. I'm going to kill everybody. Noah, believe that I love you. I've put together the structure of our relationship. Fulfill it by obedience and faith and you will live. And Noah obeys. And after flooding the world, God puts a rainbow into the skies to remind us that he'll never flood us again, but one day fires will come to purge this earth of its wickedness. The next covenant that we see is a covenant with Abraham. Abraham was, Abraham was this, this, this naked pagan out in the deserts of Chaldee, dancing around the bonfire, worshiping the moon god. And God comes to him and he says, Abraham, here's my covenant with you. I'm going to bless you big time. In fact, I'm going to bless you so much that all of the world for all of history will be blessed by you. Not because Abraham did something right, but because God chose him in this way, orchestrated the covenant. So what God does to ratify the covenant or to make it in place is he tells Just like us, when we sign a testament, what God does is he says, here, I'm going to sign this for you, Abraham. Take some animals, cut them in half. And Abraham cuts the animals in half. And in this particular scene, he's supposed to walk through, because in these covenants, as in the Old Testament, when they would do these covenants, what they would do is they cut two animals in half. And then the two people in the covenant together, they would each walk in between the halves saying, if I break this covenant, make me as these animals. But in this context, because God is the one who initiates the covenant, Abraham ends up not being able to stay awake. He falls asleep and God himself walks through as a smoking fire pot through the split animals. Essentially saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to take care of what's required in this covenant. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. And the Bible tells us in many places, Genesis, Romans chapter four, Abraham believed. He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Next covenant, just keeping walking you through here. Moses, what does he say to Moses? He says, Moses, your people are in Egypt. They're under the bondage of Pharaoh. Essentially, Moses, your people are under Satan and sin. So what am I going to do? I'm going to raise you up and you're going to set them free. Not because they're extra good, not because they figured out how to do it right, but because I'm a covenant making God. I'm going to set you free from Pharaoh. I'm going to set you free from Satan and sin. And then I'm going to deliver you from bondage. And once you get on the other side of the Red Sea, we're going to write up a covenant, not that you obey it to be righteous, but because I have freed you, live this way. And then we get the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. We get the Big Ten. We get all of those books written up. This is the Mosaic Covenant, and it's all based on, here's the way I want you to live. Here's the sacrifices I'm going to provide for you. When you don't live that way, believe and receive. Then we get to David little shepherd boy from Israel. God comes to him, pulls him off from shepherding the flocks in the hills of Judea. And he says, David, I'm going to make you a king. And there's going to be somebody on your throne forever. I will do this for you. And then finally we get to Jesus. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews chapter eight, all describe this new covenant where God comes to his people and he says, I'm going to initiate a relationship with you. I'm going to become one of you. I'm going to live the way that you cannot live because of your sin. I'm going to live perfectly in your place. You have rebelled against my relationship with you. You have fought against my will for you. But you know what I'm going to do? Rather than wiping you out, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And then I'm going to kill my son in your place. And then I'm going to raise him from the grave so that this covenant is everlasting. And he, now listen, listen, hopefully you've all tracked with me. Jesus in the new covenant is David on the throne forever. Jesus in the new covenant is the fulfillment of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Jesus in his life and death and burial and resurrection is the seed of Abraham by whom all the world and all of history is blessed. Jesus is the ark of Noah that saves us from the flood. Jesus is the new Adam 
in the new covenant who doesn't partake of the forbidden fruit but goes to the tree, goes to the cross, bleeds and dies for us. This new covenant is the way in which God relates to us. Now, everybody track with me through all of that? That's covenant language. We think of covenant of marriage. We always think of covenant as two parties in a contract with each other. And if one of those parties breaks that contract, then we're out of here. Remember, marriage is easily terminated. It's not sexually gratifying. I'm done. No, 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 no. If we understand that marriage is a covenant as God defines a covenant, then covenant for us becomes... This unconditional, sacrificial, non-negotiable, servant-hearted, never-ending commitment to seek the highest flourishing of the other, regardless of what they do in the covenant relationship, regardless of whether they're filling up their end or not. It is publicly proclaimed. This is why we do weddings in public, and you'll hear me say when I marry you guys, You'll hear me say before God and witnesses, are you ready to do your vows? Why? Because when there are a bunch of people watching that covenant be ratified, it adds an emphasis to it. It adds a power to it. It's not as easily broken. And so now we understand that the purpose of marriage is to experience God personally and to form God in my spouse. It is to express God to my spouse and to the world around me. And it is in the frame of this covenant, which is binding, legal, public, unconditional, unending, sacrificial, servant-filled, servant-hearted. Some of us may be groaning. Oh, there's no way out of this then, huh? No. And that's the joy of it. That's the point of it. That's the grace of it. That's where we become more like the Lord. And here's where I want us to close this morning. We'll go to that third slide. The purpose of marriage is to express and experience God. The framework of our marriages for them to be strong, straight and true is that they are based on this covenant, which means right now, as I'm speaking, you are determining in your heart in the grace of God. I want to make a covenant with my wife, with my husband. I want to reestablish that covenant that my love, my effort, my sacrifice, it is unconditional unconditional, non-negotiable, sacrificial, servant-hearted. Here is where we get to the guts of how this happens. The, par- the power of marriage. The power of marriage. At this point, some of you are so burdened beyond belief, you're just weighted down in your seat saying, I could never do this. I'm too selfish. I'm too prideful. I don't want to seek her highest flourishing anymore, some of you are saying. Some of you ladies are saying, there's just no way. It's just been too many years. I cannot respect them. I can't reestablish this covenant. The only way that you will have power to accomplish this fulfillment, the only way that you will be enabled to actually live in covenant relationship unconditionally, and the only way that you will be able to experience God and express God as the purposes of your marriage is if you actually believe the gospel and you're receiving the Holy Spirit for power. Let me explain it this way. I am persuaded And if you guys ever come to me for marriage counseling, and there have been some of you that have risen up and you need some counseling, and that's good. Myself, Pastor Jim, Pastor Mike are available for counseling. We want you to go to your missional community leaders. If this series starts unrooting stuff, we want you guys in your missional communities to be able to say, you know what? This sermon series is wrecking us. We need you as a family to pray for us. But in the years of my counseling, I've become thoroughly persuaded. This is going to sound overly simple, but it works. Most of our marriage conflict happens because we don't believe the gospel and we're not able to give as God has given to us because we don't believe it. We're not receiving what God has given to us or we're denying our responsibilities in the marriage. Let me express it this way. A lot of conflict arises in marriage because we begin to say, I want to be accepted and adored and respected, right? And then lo and behold, After 10, 11, 12, 15, 20 years of marriage, you know, you're no longer her knight in shining armor when you were first dating. Uh, She she says things to you that are confrontational. Uh, She says things to you that kind of hurt your feelings and sometimes embarrass you. And 99% of the time, she's absolutely right in what she's saying, right? And so you can develop this mentality that she's not accepting you. She's not respecting you. 
And you can begin to pull away from her, gentlemen. You can begin to say, you know what? She's not giving to me the love and the adoration and the pats on the back and the respect that I deserve. Therefore, I'm not going to give to her the warm cuddlies. I'm not going to give to her what she wants. And she starts feeling less accepted. She starts feeling less love, less cared for. She starts pulling away. The more she pulls away, the more you're pulling away. And slowly but surely this is happening. But if you have the power of marriage, which is believing the gospel, and this is the gospel, God unconditionally accepts you. He sings over you. He adores you regardless of what you do or don't do, have ever done, ever will do. He lavishes you with sweet, eternal love. He seeks always your highest flourishing. And the more you can believe that my God right now, regardless of what I do, is seeking and committed to my highest flourishing. I am adored. I'm accepted. I am loved. I look to her. And even as she pulls away, I'm still able to say this flow of acceptance, this flow of love, this flow of adoration. I give that freely. It is impossible to forgive somebody who has hurt you because you will hurt each other in your marriages. Unless you have first come to deeply believe how grievously you have sinned against Jesus Christ and how greatly he has forgiven you. But the more deeply you can go in your belief that I am infinitely sinful, but infinitely forgiven in his blood, the more freely the spirit will make application of that forgiveness. And suddenly when your wife, when your husband sins against you, you can come to the cross saying, my Jesus died for me. My Jesus died for her. And you can experience and express that forgiveness in covenant in the power of the gospel. You don't bend down, gentlemen. Ladies, you don't get on your faces and grit your teeth. I'm just going to have to forgive. No, forgiveness flows through you as you express and experience and understand your husband, your God who has done this for you. When you come to experience the unconditional love of God, and this was my prayer for this message this morning, everything else can just be wiped out right now. Holy Spirit, please make application of this truth. When right now where you're seated, you recognize that you are so infinitely loved, unconditionally, that no matter what you ever do, ever, no matter what you ever say, ever, it does not matter. Your covenant God is unconditionally committed to your well-being and your highest flourishing and your eternal favor. When you experience that, you can look to your spouse and say, this unconditional love so floods me, I unconditionally give to you. I don't require you to meet these standards. My God doesn't require me to meet these standards. You don't have to make up for where you messed up. Jesus made up for where you messed up. Beloved, there is nothing but grace for you this morning. How I long for you to have grace fill your hearts. And hear this. The covenant can only be fulfilled when you recognize that nothing will separate you from God's commitment to you. Nothing. It's non-negotiable. Jesus signed his commitment to you in his own blood. And if he who died for us while we were yet sinners was willing to perish on behalf of rebels and fools and wicked men and women, how much more will he give to us all good things? I would counsel you this day here at the end of this message, right now in this moment. If there are marital struggles, if there is strife, if there is hurt, and there's going to be little things, but I mean, if there's some mega stuff, take a step back, each of you, and say, Lord Jesus, show me where I'm not believing how much you love me. Show me where I'm not believing that you are committed to me. Show me where I'm not believing that I am forgiven. And Spirit of God, I receive your work in my heart. Make application of the forgiveness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the commitment of Jesus, the unconditional love of Jesus. Overflow my heart, Holy Spirit, with these truths. Take every thought captive. Bow it to the obedience of Jesus Christ and watch your marriages flourish. Then begin to pray, Holy Spirit, give me understanding of this unconditional unilateral covenant. Where it doesn't matter what she's doing or what he's doing or what he hasn't done or what he has done. I am unconditionally committed, sacrificially, non-negotiably to her highest flourishing. Gentlemen, you will feel no more masculine, no more honorable, no more filled with chivalry and valor and courage. All those great old school words that men need again. You will feel no greater purpose, no greater good, no 
powerful identity than when you are seeking her highest flourishing out of that covenantal love. Oh, if you can't tell, I want this for you bad. (laughs) I want this for you bad because Jesus wants this for you bad. So where does it start? Repentance. All y'all need to repent of not believing this. (laughs) Repent now. Walking around, schmo-schmucking around. Oh God, he couldn't love me. God's not committed to me. God's not doing good things for me. Brother, sister, repent of that. And let the truth of Jesus Christ just saturate your souls. I'll close it by saying this. Do for your spouse what God has done for you in Jesus. Do for your spouse what God has done for you in Jesus. And just watch the spirit begin to build vibrancy and life. Watch emotional intimacy re-engage. Watch your sex lives really begin to come alive because when we get to the next sessions, we'll be talking about having sex all day, which is something that I use to describe Sometimes, no, (laughs) it's, it's this intimacy that happens outside of physical intercourse prefaced by this loving interaction all through the day. We're going to take a break there. And, um, I want to kind of field some questions. Pastor Jim and Pastor Mike are in here. They can field questions as well. And there may be some sensitive questions. Uh, I would just ask that you be bold because, When we ask questions in community, it really helps us. So, you know, maybe just take five minutes here and try to answer some questions around the nature of purpose, covenant. Um, Some of you may be starting to ask questions like, man, what's he talking about when he's talking about submission? That's a bad word. I don't like that word. Some of you may be some of you may be sitting there saying, uh, what's Danny talking about when he's talking about headship? Oh, I like that word. That's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, singleness, if some of you still have questions about singleness and courting, let's just use this time here to build each other up. Um, and if there's any questions, be bold, raise up your hands and let's see if we can kind of get some questions answered here this morning. So on the count of three, be bold. One, two, three, any questions? If not, we're just going to worship. So it's cool. You guys got this whole marriage thing all figured out? Let's see how long I can make you sit here and feel totally awkward. Because I'm fine with it. Candy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and thank you so much for being bold and asking that. We're going to, nobody's really emailed me about questions on marriage and divorce and then remarriage. The Bible has a lot to say about it, um, but it says it ambiguously. And so there is a number of scholarly and theological opinion on how marriage and divorce plays out. And Candy, Candy makes a very valid and uh, important point. Uh, statistically speaking, uh, every one of your marriages is going to fail. Just according to the stats. So if you take each couple, they're going to make it. Nope, make it. Nope, make it. Nope, make it. Nope. Divorce um, is a horrible, horrible, painful, um, everlasting wound and scar. Because marriage is designed by God and it does entail more than just civil union and it, it unites soul and spirit and all of these things. It's a, it is a, a horrific weight on the soul to be, to be divorced. And here's how I would answer the question. She says, this series can be very discouraging because you can sit through this series and go, well, here's where I messed up. Here's where I messed up. And, and brothers and sisters, I think for a lot of you in this series, you may be finding yourself saying, man, here's where I'm messing up. Here's where I'm messing up. Um, if we could go back to that last slide. Uh, the, the, power, the power of marriage is you've got to believe the gospel. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, okay? You must embrace the absolute, unconditional truth that no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what decisions you've made, in this present moment, the only thing that is for you as you cry out to Jesus is grace, grace, mercy, help, acceptance, adoration, forgiveness, and love. It's out of that framework that you can begin to make amends with your own soul 
and make amends even with the person that you divorced. Um, it's from that kind of position of acceptance and security where you can now begin to work in your marriages with safety. Where the two of you, for those of you that are feeling really convicted by this sermon series, just going, oh man, I'm so burdened. It's out of grace and love and, and recognizing that because we're in a covenant, God kind of locks us into that thing regardless of whether we do it right or not. Let grace govern everything you do. Let grace govern the way you think. Let grace govern the way you think about each other. Let grace govern, if you're divorced and single today, that those decisions were made. And listen, Jesus was hanging on the cross seeing every one of those decisions for you, before you were ever born. He perished for you while you were yet a sinner. So you live out of that truth and you embrace that truth and you believe it and you ask the Holy Spirit to make application of it. Great question. Great question. Any other, any other thoughts that arise to anybody's hearts? Points of understanding that you'd like to grow in? Would it be helpful to do a session on divorce and remarriage? Just nod your heads if anything or nothing, maybe, no? Okay. Good. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so if divorce is, is painful, unequal yoked um, marriages are just as tragic and just as horrific. So our sister asks a great question. What do you do with those that are unequally yoked? Um, and Paul addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul details out for that little church, some of you are married and you've become believers and your husband or your wife has not become a believer. And what Paul essentially says is, if the unbelieving partner is willing to stay in, the unbelieving partner says, fine, you go do your religious thing. I'm going to the golf course. Fine, husband, go do your religious thing. I'm not into that Jesus thing. Just give me the credit card. I'm going to go shopping, right? So you have that scenario played out. But that individual is saying, I'm going to go golfing, but look, I'm going to stay married to you. You can do your church thing, do your Jesus thing, go to your women's Bible studies, but I love you and I want to stay with you. Then Paul says, stay with them. Stick it out. Later on in 1 Peter, Peter exhorts the wives in particular. And he says to the wives of unbelieving husbands, he says, by your submissive and silent spirit, win them over. Um, oftentimes in unequally yoked marriages where the wife is the believer and the husband is the unbeliever, the wife becomes kind of the dripping faucet. Come to church with me. Come to church with me. Come to church with me. You need to hear this stuff. You got, you got to come listen to pastor. Danny. And by the time he shows up, he's like, I don't like you, dude. My wife is just like making me crazy. Right. There is a silent, holy prayerful belief that sovereign God is at work by the spirit. And if an unbelieving partner is willing to stay in the marriage, God, the spirit is working through that, not through nagging, not through coercing, but through prayerful, holy submission. Now you mentioned, uh, that there are situations where, uh, the marriages become abusive and God in no way ever restrains his daughters to remain in physical harm. And I would take it so far as to say in the realm of verbal harm and emotional harm. That's, that's a very, very dangerous statement that I'm making right there because that can be defined a million different ways. But abuse, God does not abuse his kids. And so God would never say to a believing woman who is in a situation with a man where he is especially if he's physically beating her, she needs to get out of there. The church needs to come around her, take care of her. Um, honestly, this is where, you know, uh, a few deacons and a, a few elders from the church need to go over and 
sit down with the fellow and say, you know, you may not believe in Jesus, but you're going to learn how to respect a woman. And um, we're going to hold you accountable to that. You know, it's not like a, an intimidation thing. It's just letting a guy know this sister is part of our flock and, and we'll protect her. So um, I hope that for the most part answers your question. The, the, the real issue, like we talked about in courting, is don't ever start it off on the wrong foot. Any of you that are dating right now, if you're dating a non-believer, if you're in an intimate relationship with a non-believer, one, it's egregious sin. Um, it's, it's no different than sex outside of marriage or homosexuality or drunkenness or lying. You're, it's sin. It's just sin, period. Two, it's interweaving two people that cannot actually interweave at any point because they're two categorically different people. One regenerate, one new. So stop it there. For those that have made that decision, I want to emphasize this. If you are currently married to somebody who's not a believer, but they're willing to stay in the marriage, you didn't marry the wrong one. I think this is an important distinction to make. God in his sovereignty saw you making those decisions, either willingly or, or unwillingly, unaware of what would be the repercussion, and there's nothing but grace for you. I don't want you to sit there in your seat slunk down saying, oh no, I made a huge mistake. Now I'm never going to have happiness in marriage. That's not true. God, by the Holy Spirit, has grace. You are forgiven. God is with you. And now God wants to begin to use you, giving these perspectives of purpose and covenant and the power of the gospel to start praying for and, and loving your unbelieving spouse. And if any of you are in any sort of abusive situation, I would exhort you to please um, come and speak with the pastors um, or your missional community leader. You need to get that on the table. Nobody needs to stay in a relationship where, you, where you're being hurt. And if you are, just be bold and get out of that situation and find help. Um, there's a lot of dudes in here that would be willing to help you uh, in a very godly, non-intimidating pastoral way. So, good, good questions. We've got time for maybe one more, and then we're going to wrap this up for today, and we're going to start singing. All right. Well, next week, we're going to get into some really, really juicy stuff. We're going to get into role responsibility. We're going to be talking about uh, submission. Uh, we're going to be talking about headship. We're going to be talking about authority. Uh, we're going to be talking about all of those things. And so uh, we'll keep on with the Q&A um, next week because I think it's good to have Q&A. Uh, and then the following week, after those two sessions, we'll do conflict resolution. Uh, and then we'll start two sessions on biblical sexuality and then two sessions on uh, raising biblical kids. Uh, and then it will be the new year. Let me pray for us, guys. Uh, why don't we all stand and we're going to worship our God this morning. <clears throat> I want to continue to exhort you as missionaries and disciple makers that, you know, these Sunday mornings are, are designed specifically to give you tools to make disciples. So when we stand up and sing these last two songs, pray that the Holy Spirit will, will send you out because now you guys have these tools and you can sit down with those that are in rough marriages, your friends and your family members, and you can say, you know what? Hey, I've been going to church, and I've been, I've been listening to Pastor Danny. I've been, like, looking at the Bible and learning about the Bible. And, you know, this, this deal, Joe, as you're, you know, shooting pool with your buddy, this deal in your marriage, man, let me tell you, there's this thing, like, there's this thing about covenant and all this stuff that, like, switches stuff around. I'd love for you to start learning about this. Just use these things as tools to make disciples and be bold in inviting people to come and learn about their marriages. Although next week it's going to get real crazy, so it'll be super offensive for a lot of people. Uh, let's pray and we're going to worship. Father, um, thank you that your word is true. Thank you for this uh, dear and beloved flock of yours. She is special to you. Taproot is uh, adored by you, not because we as a community of people, got it right, uh, but simply because you chose us and you love us. You put us on the ark of Jesus. You said through us, this city will be blessed. You want to bless this city and our workplaces through us. Lord, you've given us requirements by which we live now, not to be right with you, but because we are right with you, we want to live out our marriages to express and to experience you. And Father, Thank you that you are the king who rules. And one day we will be little baby kings and little baby queens ruling alongside you. That's the truth of the gospel. As we enter into worship, may husbands grab the wives' hands and may they worship together as one. May forgiveness flood this place right now.
forgiveness for wrongs done to each other, I pray. Mercy, Lord Jesus, towards each other. May there be a reestablishment of covenant commitment today in these couples. I pray that you would reinvigorate and strengthen their covenant commitment, not out of a gritting of the teeth, but that they would right now experience how committed you are to them, unconditionally in love with them. May the husbands embrace their wives, hold them tight, saying, I will protect you in the power of Jesus. I will guide you. I will care for you because my God protects me, cares for me, never leaves me, always guides me. May the wives submit themselves unto their husbands because we as a church wholly submit ourselves to you today. God, we pray for the up-and-coming marriages, so many young people, so many singles in this community that you've blessed us with. I pray for the ladies' husbands. Raise up mighty men of power and strength and wisdom. Lord, I pray for the boys, that they would be men of purity, and I pray, God, that their wives would be women of holiness and modesty and chastity. And we pray to saturate this culture up through the UW, all through the schools, all through the neighborhoods with men and women living in that restored reality with you. We seek the highest flourishing of our spouses. We seek the highest flourishing of our neighborhoods and our friends and our family members today. Send these saints with your power. And as we worship you, God, oh God, may your presence just fill us to overflowing. Thank you for the cross of Jesus. Thank you that you live and one day we will live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.